four cards that made a million. Hello and welcome to episode 978 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, presented by our Patreon supporters and the Play Index at BaseballReference.com. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined as always by Sam Miller of ESPN. Hello. Hey. How are you? I'm okay. How are you? All right. Can I uh, tell you what I stumbled across today? Please do. This was from a uh, from the Los Angeles Times in 1927, I believe. And <laughs> and it is headlined: Pitchers break bone while tossing ball. Pitchers, plural. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so I the reason I bring this up is because we just talked about uh, poor who was it Tommy Holmes or something like that who broke his uh, arm mid-throw in high school, and we talked about how painful that would be to watch. And so this headline got me because it's uh, apparently two pitchers breaking a bone while tossing a ball. So I read more. Uh, And the headline's a little misleading, but again, the headline, Pitchers Break Bone While Tossing Ball uh, by Al Damari, and then in parentheses, former pitcher, New York Giants. Got got his Mm. byline. Okay. Uh I'm just going to read you the article entirely, okay? Okay. All right. Whole thing. I'm going to read you the whole thing. All right. All right. Pitchers suffering injuries to their arms by being hit with pitched or batted balls is not uncommon. But four pitchers chipping or breaking bones in their elbows by the simple act of throwing the ball in their regular delivery is unprecedented in any club, much less on the same team. Mm. But But it is a fact that Charlie Robertson, Red Faber, Reb Russell, and Butcher Boy Joe Bentz, all pitchers on the Chicago White Sox, broke or shattered bones in their elbows in this manner. It drove Benz out of baseball and sent Russell to the minors as an outfielder. Benz's arm was rendered so helpless that he couldn't even saw meat. (laughs) (laughs) That's very debilitating. Robertson and Faber both were successfully operated on by Dr. Bruschker, the club physician, and particles of chipped bone were removed so that their old effectiveness returned. So what do we think is going on here? I was just about to ask. I can't figure out the timeline here. <laughs> this, so yeah, this is, I think it's, I think it was actually even earlier than I said. I think it was uh, early 1920s. There was a picture of a human elbow in a, a drawing, like a, almost like a cartoon drawing to illustrate this of a human elbow where like a surgeon had marked an X on the elbow. And that's it. That's all the clues we have, Ben. <laughs> do you think this is just, do you think they discovered bone chips or I can't, do so... you think that all four of them actually threw baseballs and their arms cracked. That was the implication, right? It was. But, I'm going to so, remind you, the headline was pitchers yeah. break bone while tossing ball. Yeah. Maybe they were conjoined twins and they all broke the same elbow, conjoined mm-hmm. quartets. I, I, I mean, what is... So it started out by saying that it was 
unprecedented for this to happen at all, right? Like it's never happened to anyone before. Again, I've got what you've got, but that is <laughs> that is yes. I'm gonna I'll, I'll repeat. Pitchers <laughs> suffering injuries to their arms by being hit with pitched or batted balls is not uncommon, but for pitchers chipping or breaking bones in their elbows by the simple act of throwing the ball in their regular delivery is unprecedented in any club much less on the same team now that that fine those last couple clauses don't make any sense what is unprecedented in any club much less on the same team mean what is in any club mean and how does much less on the same team uh, contradict that it sounds like they're saying it's unprecedented on any team much yeah. less on a team <laughs> yeah i think it's just a couple unnecessary clauses added for emphasis that don't really actually add emphasis but so it's saying that it's never happened Wait, did it say it's unprecedented for four pitchers or unprecedented for four pitchers as in f-o-r or f-o-u-r for the number four okay so it's unprecedented for wait four wait wait, pitchers wait to... hang on hang on hang on hang on hang on hang on <laughs> Hang on. But four pitchers chipping or breaking bones is unprecedented in any okay. club. Okay. The number four. All right. So, okay. Well, that sounds right. <laughs> I don't know how you would verify that, but it seems unlikely that four would happen. But yeah, we don't, they all happened in the same season. Uh, again, <laughs> it not, it's not, it's not made super clear. I'm, yeah. I'm sort of, right now I'm looking through the, uh, Chicago White Sox uh, season log. So let me let me see here. Uh, we got Red pitched this year, uh, but none of the others did. Do you have? Uh, it's you not have me. Something it's... you can close? Nope, I don't. Mm. All right. It just is. Just <laughs> accept it, people. There's a <laughs> okay. dustbuster going on. That's all. All right. All okay. right. So who did I say? I said uh, so. Charlie and Red, and then. Uh, Butcher Boy and uh, and Reb Russell. So I still have not found any year in which all four of them have pitched. Well, maybe they didn't pitch because they all broke their bone. Yeah, maybe. Was it Butcher Boy who couldn't saw meat? Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> all right, that makes sense. All right. <laughs> anyway, I don't know. I can't tell. The, all three of these pitchers pitched together in 1921, or three of them pitched together in 1921. But otherwise, I don't know. I'm not. I'm not sure. I'm not. Well, I haven't put all, all I know the is details together. If I submitted this draft as is, I would get quite a few questions from uh, my editor. Not to mention fact checkers and copy editors. There's there's a lot going on here. It's yeah. It's Maybe also it was written it's, on it's deadline. On sh- he just had yeah. to get this story about the four guys before some other paper beat him to it. You should try turning in a three-paragraph article someday. <laughs> that makes no sense. Yeah. I wonder. Uh, I wonder if Passon would know anything about this. Sounds like a good story, but yeah. need more information. I did Google around trying to find some information on Doctor Brusker, the club physician. Couldn't find anything mm. on him. Too bad. This is uh, pre the era of pitchers we can call. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> oh well. So it goes. All right. That's Can't all wait I got. to find out what all this deep archive digging you're doing will lead to. Just you're just talking. You're just saying because I found this article. Uh, yeah, and you tweeted a headline from an old article, mm. and uh, you're, you're reading right. old tweets. It's all connected. It's all part of something you're doing. No, the tweets are a different thing. <laughs> okay. All right. So we're going to do emails now. So start with an email. 
from Chris. Long-time listener, first-time emailer. Like so many of your fans, no doubt, I'm a British guy living in Tokyo. Like so, many in... of, like so many of your no-doubt fans, he's a British guy living in Tokyo, too. <laughs> no-doubt yeah. is huge in Tokyo. Yeah, I played a no-doubt song last week. So, being in Japan, I am treated to lots of live baseball featuring Japanese players and relatively advantageous time zones for watching games. East Coast games start at 8 a.m., After broadcasting every Marlins game for what felt like forever as Ichiro crawled to 3,000 hits, one of the networks is now showing every one of his MLB hits so far. They are doing so in 50-minute commercial-free chunks, 500 hits per show, one after the other, by my math, or maths in this case. That means they show an Ichiro hit every six seconds on average. I watched two of these programs, so have now seen enough infield singles to last quite a while. If you had to watch a similar program, which hitter would you most and least want to see and why? I saw another tweet that uh, from 2011 um, where I was trying to figure out uh, why a YouTube video of every Jared Weaver strikeout ever existed. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I, I watched that whole thing. Uh, you watched that whole thing. How many strikeouts is that? He had a lot. He was <laughs> yeah. great. Jared Weaver was great. Yeah, well, strikeouts, I'm trying to think. I think strikeouts are more fun to watch than hits, I think, just generic hits, because singles are often not very fun to watch. And Ichiro is the, Ichiro is Ichiro, the one yeah, person, though, that you would Yeah, definitely, Ichiro. Say. I was, uh, my first thought was, um, <clears throat> like, Yvonne Rodriguez throws to second. Yep. Mm-hmm. And... I don't know. What else? Uh, maybe every, like, Vlad Guerrero outfield assist. Yeah. Well, he's asking specifically about what which hitters we would most or least want to see. Yeah. But other things we would most or least want to see is, is maybe even a better question. Yeah, I, uh, I'd probably enjoy, speaking of Vlad Guerrero, I'd enjoy seeing Vlad Guerrero swing at pitches outside the strike zone or oh, Pablo yeah. Sandoval maybe hit pitches outside the strike zone or... Yeah, I don't know. For for actual hits, I'd probably say Giancarlo Stanton for hits just because he hits the ball harder than anyone. Although, I don't know, if you only have six seconds per clip, I don't know if that's enough to appreciate the majesty of some of his moonshots. So so here's – okay, here's one. Here's here's my answer. Okay. Uh, you can pick anybody, but anybody who's a, you know, a great hitter, but I'll just say Tony Gwynn where the hits are sorted – by angle of direction. So he basically starts on the left field line and you see all 3,300 hits or whatever in order of uh, from the left field line to the right field line. And you just mm-hmm. see the whole thing like sprinklers. Yeah, that'd be fun. What else? I mean, what? I don't know what a, I don't know if there's a hitter whose hits would be more boring than anyone else's. All hits kind of look the same unless you're like a, huge power hitter or a speedster who beats out lots of infield hits. I guess if you have a a nice aesthetically pleasing swing or a weird stance or something, that would help. But otherwise, I don't know. I mean, it would just be people who look like Ichiro or do things like Ichiro, like Billy Hamilton or something, or or the opposite end of the spectrum with Stanton. I don't know what else would appeal to me. Hits wise. I'd like to see a highlight package of every line drive caught by the pitcher. Mm, yeah, that'd be fun. I could watch that. I'm trying to think of what what act I could watch on repeat for 50 minutes. 
And I'm not sure I could do better than Ichiro hits, especially if I were, um, you know, an Ichiro fan or if I was in Japan. I think that would actually be a lot of fun. Uh, and I would watch that. But I would also watch uh, pitchers catching line drives. Yeah, I used to watch Jose Molina frames <laughs> over and over and over again when I was looking for the best ones or whatever. I'd queue them all up. So that was one I used to do. You could probably do the same thing with Asmani Grandal or whoever. So... I don't know. Anything else? I'd watch a highlight reel of uh, every line drive hit into the dugout. Mm, yeah. It Well, if you get the reaction shot yeah, of guys I'm assuming you would. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Sure. That'd be fun. I'd be interested in seeing every pop-up that hung in the air for more than 7.5 seconds. <laughs> that, I think that'd get pretty boring. <laughs> I mean, every now and then you'd get a draft one, but... 99 point something percent of them would be caught. So you'd just have uh, eight seconds of <laughs> guys standing around. I'd watch a highlight reel of uh, pitchers failing to get the bunt down on two strikes. Hmm. Okay. I think that's a particular, uh, it's a particular subgenre of strikeout face that I'd be interested in examining. I'd like pitchers reacting to giving up home runs. Maybe there are sometimes good ones. Yeah. Uh, I'd like... Uh, runners who run through first base, but and then the throw gets away from the first baseman, but not far enough for the runner to advance. But the runner has already sort of made a move to, to second and so now has to scurry back to first. <laughs> it's very specific. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I would like to see a highlight reel of all the instances where a catcher gets crossed up uh, and has to go out to the mound to go over the signs again. But I just want to see the pitches, though. I like watching catchers get crossed up. I think that's one of my favorite <laughs> favorite <laughs> things to watch in baseball. So catcher yeah. who, like, sort of gets out of his crouch <laughs> thinking it's a curveball uh, or something <laughs> of that sort. Yeah, that'd be I, good. Yeah. All right, well, we'll probably keep thinking of some as we go. Emergency catchers <laughs> are good. Oh, oh, I like, uh, I like plays that third basemen make on balls uh, – that hug the line but have been called foul mm, okay. so that they, but they, they still go, go through they the still motions. go through the motions yeah and <laughs> i like i think those are those are some great plays too because if you really if you pull it off it's always an out because usually the runner hasn't bothered to 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 keep running the whole way and uh -huh. so uh there's there it's basically seeing like uh you know brooks robinson make play after play after play and get the out every single time <laughs> yeah <laughs> Oh, you know what I like? I like the play where the third baseman dives for the ball and can't get it, but the shortstop goes into the hole and gets it. I like that. I like the. Uh, I, I like the, yeah, the sort of the look like the like the battlefield is collecting bodies, but this like lone shortstop is is gonna make it. Oh, I interpret it differently. I look at it as just a very nonchalant kind of thing, like the guy in front of him dove and gave all his effort and came up empty, and then. The shortstop just doesn't even have to dive to get it. All right. Should I move on? I feel like you're going to be coming up with these for the next 10 minutes, and I'm going to have to keep stopping. Do you want to get any more out of your system before I move on? Uh, <laughs> no, we can go. Okay. If you get some more, save them for the end. All right. Danny says, did Bryce Harper's down year cost him any money in free agency? And... In case you are worried that Bryce Harper is actually a free agent right now, he is not. He is not a free agent until after, what, 2018? 
so he still has a couple more seasons. But he's wondering if the fact that he had a much worse year than last year when he became the best player in baseball will cost him any money a few years down the road. I mean, like, as opposed to what else would he have done? If he had had, like, I think it's fair to say that if he'd hit 85 home runs this year, that he, that would have been worth more money to him than what he did. Yes. So what are we comparing this to? Well, I guess, I mean, he had, it it all depends, obviously. If, if he returns to a higher level. Well, first, uh, no, first, first, let's say what we mean by a down year, a down year as opposed to what? He hit his Pakoda, so... Yeah, but I think everyone would have <laughs> so in said one his Pakoda was too low. Of course, everyone did. Literally every single person who played that. <laughs> literally every person who played the game yeah. did. However, in one sense, you know, it wasn't even a you know, quote-unquote down year in like that very weird, narrow sense. Uh, but if like we're saying that he was worse than the year before when he was the best non-Bonds hitter of the last 15, 20 years. Yeah. Um, well, by baseball reference, he was a 1.6 war player. So yeah. I mean, so what he are we saying though? Average at best. What are we saying would have been expected for him? I think anything over say five wins okay. would not have been considered a down year. All right. So we're gonna say that uh, did we're gonna answer the question of whether this cost him money relative to a five and a half win season. Yeah. Okay. Boy. Now, yeah, I still, I still can't answer it because <laughs> it's so hard to know what he's going to do in the next two years. Yeah, I think there's potential for it not to cost him a penny, right? There's still a chance that it won't cost him anything because if he comes back in the next couple of years and is, you know, the best player in the league again for two years in a row and three out of four years, I don't think anyone's going to hold this against him. They'll probably just say whatever he was hurt and had a shoulder thing or whatever it was and and that's that and it's far enough in the rearview mirror that we don't need to care about it so i think that is still a, a possible outcome for him okay so now let me lay out a scenario where he is the five win player each of the next two years so he is not the mvp he is not the best player in baseball he is however you know he he's one of the best hitters in baseball he produces 11 wins over the next two years. He finishes uh, sixth and um, and 14th in MVP voting, uh, and then he hits the market. Does this year cost him relative to whether, you know, to, to if he had done the same thing? Yes, I think it does. Okay. I think it doesn't. Okay. Yeah, I think if he returns to close to his previous level and stays there for the next couple of years— then he won't suffer at all. And if he doesn't get close to that previous level so that people are already thinking, well, what is this guy? He's he's not the guy he looked like in 2015. He's, he's very good, but there's still downside that he might not be very good because he wasn't all that good in 2016. I think that would cost him relative to being worth five wins every year because if he had been worth five wins in three years in a row – following the 10 win season then you'd think well the downside is five wins and only a handful of players actually come into a season projected to be worth five wins so he's still one of the very tippy top elite players in baseball whereas if he was average or so within the last few years then i think it's easier to imagine that happening again we we know that most teams have some projection system that they use internally 
We know that his season this year will affect those projections. Do we think that teams actually follow those projections for players as high profile and as sort of as obvious as Bryce Harper? Or when it gets to free agency, uh, are they basically just going with with emotion and 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 what's sort of obvious and in front of them and what they need and and how the rest of the world is treating Bryce Harper to the point that the projections don't matter because it is undeniable that Bryce Harper's 2019 projection is affected by this year. Yep. Mm-hmm. I would think that with a player like him, you're more likely to get ownership intervention. So, and because his contract will probably be enormous if he rebounds over the, the next couple of years, it's the kind of thing where, you know, Scott Boris will talk directly to the owner and maybe the owner will, will rule in favor, even if the front office isn't totally on board. So I think in that sense, he's the kind of guy who could just bypass the projection system. But I think if it were left entirely up to the front office, it would still play a role. What? T- how long does the timeline, does the time frame have to be for you to rather have Bryce Harper on your team than Rich Hill right now? <laughs> if it were, if I, if you could only have one for the next week, the next week, I mean, obviously there's no games, but Rich Hill is healthy. Yeah. And so if, if a week of baseball were about to be played, would you rather have Rich Hill than Bryce Harper? Yeah, okay, I think so. so. If right, we could continue. That's all I need. I just season. needed you. I just needed you to, to grant me this premise. Now, yes. how far out would you go? Well, I definitely don't go to all of 2017. I, I take Bryce Harper over Hill for next season. So are we are we talking we're just talking continuation of this past season because it could be different, I guess, if we're talking about like next year. Cuz once the calendar flips and, you know, like maybe Harper heals and works on his mechanics or whatever, like I think I'd probably take Harper over Hill on even, opening day next year. Oh, you even would. For, even for even five for a days. game. Oh, yeah, for 5 days, I think I would. Okay, well, then you won't give me the premise and it's not worth doing this. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. By the way, I, I, I'm i not totally sure that this year will still play a role in his projections come 2018 or 2018 to 19 offseason. I think that will be the case for, you know, Pakoda or, or the public projection systems probably, although who knows how they'll change by then. But, but the standard of sort of waiting the last, three years or Pakoda has even taken the last five years at times and weighting them by recency. I would bet that uh, a baseball team, given stat cast, given exit velocity, given, you know, defensive stats that they can get through through stat cast, I would think that going back three years, maybe we're at the point where going back three years doesn't improve your projection. I don't know. Maybe not. But I would think that you could get reliable enough with the the stats that are stable in small samples that we have now that maybe it wouldn't matter so much to go back three years. And I'd also say that I think Harper's struggles this year made us look more closely at his 2015 season, which could also impact his future earnings, right? Like the, the Jeff Sullivan article, the Rob Arthur article, I had them unaffectedly wild and Talked about how he probably got a little lucky last year. As good as he was, his results were much better than you would expect based on how he hit the ball. So I think the the increased scrutiny of his struggles this year made us go back and reappraise what he did last year. And now we might not think of his season last year as 
a totally legitimate 10 win season maybe we we discount it slightly and so we don't even give him that peak potential yeah i think that makes sense all right question from sean given the rise in data collection pitch fx statcast uzr etc what bit of data would you want to collect to be able to more accurately assess the defensive value of catchers it can be something currently measurable or something more sci-fi well this is your this is your area well i think i would record their conversations i think if i could record all Dude, of their you conversations couldn't, you couldn't you couldn't do anything if you had their conversations recorded i couldn't i couldn't but i think smart people could i think if you if you measured like all of their interactions with a pitching staff over the over the course of a season like you could somehow just surveil them and whenever they started talking to a pitcher you just automatically get a transcript or whatever and you could feed that into you know some sort of like language analysis algorithm i think you could probably classify the way that they talk to their pitchers the way that they interact with their pitchers even just how regularly they interact with their pitchers and you know what do they say when they go out there during a mound visit you could maybe put them into different categories and and you could start to sort of correlate what they say and the language that they use with the pitch calling stats that Harry and his crew have come up with, which are, you know, kind of crude right now. They're just like everything that's left over when we account for all the rest of the value. Well, you could pair those with what they say with, you know, how they relate to their pitchers. And you could start to say, well, this is how you, this is how you manage a pitching staff. And this is why he's good at that. So I think that would be my choice. Obviously I personally could not do a thing with that information, but, uh, I bet there are people out there who could. I'm not. I'm not sold. <laughs> okay. Well, it's the best I got because I almost everything else, I, you know, like if you could measure, uh, Command FX does measure the the glove position, and so that's already a measured thing. It's not publicly available, but uh, that's you know I think a somewhat flawed thing just because the the target isn't always. Where you hold the glove is not always actually where you want the ball to go, especially with non-fastballs, but but that data exists, so uh, I don't know that that really counts here because it's already being collected. So if we're already measuring that and we're already measuring how hard they throw and how well they frame and all that other stuff, then uh, I don't know. what What's left over? What would you want? Well, I mean, you're. I agree with you on like the track you were on. I just don't even know what I would what I would actually want to collect uh-huh. for that. I mean, I agree that the that the blank space is about how they affect their pitchers as far as their pitcher's ability to make it through a game, their pitcher's ability to manage themselves, and the catcher's ability to work with that pitcher in a way that the right pitch is being called, the pitcher feels confidence in that pitch. Mm-hmm. Um, so I agree with all that. I just don't think that I would trust the literal words that are being said as data. Uh, uh-huh. So I guess I probably would want something that was more like fMRI <laughs> related, uh-huh. uh, yeah. I guess. Well, all right. How about if you could record every pitch called, every pitch signaled for, so that you could match that up with the pitcher's actual pitch and you could see how often the pitcher 
shakes off the catcher or follows the catcher's recommendation, or you could just evaluate the catcher's pitch selection sort of independent of the pitcher because you would know what the catcher wanted the pitcher to throw. Um, I don't know that I would... I don't know that I would consider it a plus that the pitcher doesn't shake off the catcher. I think if the pitcher has got a good plan and the catcher is fine being shaken off, depending on the people involved, I don't know that there's a an objective answer to whether that's bad. I mean, I know that it is anecdotally talked about as uh, you know a, a bad thing when a catcher is getting shaken off a lot, but I mean, it really does depend on the, the pitcher. Like Sean shook mm. a lot, and Sean shook a lot partly because he liked to shake. He didn't really care about the pitch. Like Johnny Cueto shakes off before Buster puts the signs down. Have you seen that? <laughs> no. It's one of the greatest things in baseball right now. Is Johnny just like he likes to shake, and he likes the batter to see him shake. And so sometimes he'll shake two or three signs off before Buster's even put his fingers down. <laughs> it's very funny. It's true. Dustin Palmatier has documented it. Cool. Um, uh, anyway, that that doesn't discredit what you just said but uh i don't think that i would uh, consider it a bad i mean you know i have i have friends who uh, i argue with and i have friends who i don't argue with and if i started arguing with the ones who i don't argue with then that would be a bad thing it'd be a source a sign of tension and a source of tension uh mm-hmm. whereas if i argue with the ones i do argue with it's that's healthy that's why we're friends well you would have this data for every catcher and pitcher combination right so you in theory you could figure out uh you know, does the pitcher, you could plug it into Jonathan Judge's mixed model and do his advanced stat stuff and, and find out, okay, this, this catcher makes the pitcher shake off more often than he would with another catcher. Yeah. I don't know though. It's, it's <laughs> like, it's their relationship too. Uh, yeah. I don't know. I mean, what I, what I really want is at the end, after each pitch, uh, I would want the, pitcher to fill out a form that says how confident he was throwing that pitch and whether you know he he thinks in retrospect it was the right pitch and then i would want the hitter to fill out a form saying how difficult the pitch was to hit and also what he was expecting um so <laughs> rob benford would not approve of this in the impact on pace of game yeah but i mean if we're getting sci-fi i think it's mm-hmm. i think it's the perspective of the batter that you want to get into you want to see if you are actually in his head and or outsmarting him and it's the perspective of the pitcher that you're interested in whether he just feels better out there whether he feels like the plan is um strengthened by the presence of another person on his team or um in some way kind of the catcher is an obstacle Mm -hmm. all right you cheated a little by expanding it to everyone (laughs) but i will i'll accept it all right play index sure a few years ago, Chris Jaffe, the great writer and uh, I think history teacher who writes at Hardball Times, uh, wrote a thing about that, that blew my mind about franchise records. And so this was, it was like 10 things he learned by digging into franchise records. And number mm-hmm. three, the part that blew my mind, number three, every single expansion franchise has a losing cumulative record which is crazy, right? Like, yeah. it makes sense, as as Chris writes, it makes sense that you'd sort of dig a little bit of a hole early on, but we're talking about teams that have 55 years of experience now. You'd think that they would have overcome that. Uh, at least some teams would have overcome that 
but when Chris was writing this, it had not happened. Every, there was there was some institutional disadvantage to being an expansion team, or maybe to being in the cities that were you know less prime perhaps for expansion, that created decades long holes that none of them uh, had yet come out of. And I this was five years ago, and I wanted to see if it's still true, how true it is. And so I uh, looked up every franchise's all-time record, and uh, it is mostly still true, almost entirely still true, uh, but for uh, a little tiny, tiny, tiny exception. So the best record in history, the franchise with the best record in history since, since 1913 at least, uh, is the Yankees by 41 points of winning percentage over the second best. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> the Yankees in a, in a 162 game season would average 93.3 over a century. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. So anyway, the Yankees and then the Dodgers and then the Cardinals and then the Giants and then the Red Sox and then the Indians and then the Tigers and then the Reds. So the top eight teams are all non-expansion teams. And then the 10th team is the White Sox a non-expansion team. And those are the only 10 teams that are at 500. And actually, technically, the White Sox aren't at 500. They're five games under. It rounds up to 500. But they're 8-1-1-5 and 8-1-2-0. So, in fact, only nine teams out of 30 have a winning record as a franchise, which is sort of significant and puts the... Uh, we might have been looking at this wrong. We, it might We might have been thinking, oh, well, this is a, about how hard it is to be an expansion team. But it might actually be something about the way that success in baseball is so lopsided to certain teams that really only one in three teams even is a winning team, even though theoretically it's all zero sum. The one exception to the no expansion, no winning expansion teams is the Angels. They have crawled up. I was monitoring it closely when I was there because they had gotten to within like 18 games uh, of it, I think, when I left the Orange County Register. They have since gone over it. They are 4,477 and 4,465. 12 games over 500 with a 501 winning percentage. They could very easily drop below that this year. All they have to do is what says go is 74 and, and 92, and uh-huh. they would drop back under 500 and we would be back. On the other hand, the uh, Blue Jays are climbing toward it. The Blue Jays are now within 21 games of 500 with a 498 winning percentage. Then you have to go down a ways. The Astros are about 200 games, 201 games under 500. The Diamondbacks, with a shorter history, uh, have a worse winning percentage, but are only 72 games under 500. So, you know, I guess three or four good years could get them there. The Royals are 230 games under. The Nationals slash Expos are 230 games under. The Mets are 330 games under. The Rangers are almost 400 under, and the Brewers are about 350 under. And then the Mariners, the Marlins, the Rockies, the Padres, and finally the Rays. Still the Rays with the worst winning percentage of any franchise in history uh, at 462. So if the Yankees win an average of 93 games a year over a 162-game season over the course of their history, uh, the Rays win an average of 75. Uh, so again, there, you sort of see how the, the the worst teams are not as bad as the best teams are. The Phillies, in fact, if you take out the Yankees, it might this might all be a Yankees effect because <laughs> they're so far ahead. 
the only non-expansion team that is close to the bottom is the Phillies, who are still just barely ahead of the Rays and the Padres and way down. But um, if you take all the expansion teams, we're talking about 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, uh, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 teams played, I don't know, 100,000 games or so, 120, 110,000 games, which means that they have played cumulatively some 680 seasons, 679 seasons, which is, I mean, even if you grant each of them a five-year run-up to get kind of good, uh, that only accounts for, uh, you know, 70 of of almost 700 seasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, they still, though, have a cumulative winning percentage of just 482 over that time. Uh, so they're bad. The, being an expansion team hurts you for a very long time. And I, I don't think that this is an accent. I also don't think that it's the Yankees effect that I was saying. I think that it really is about being an expansion team. I think that in ways that are sort of small and undetectable, uh, how good you are does have uh, ripples that last for many years, decades even, uh, on the personnel you have in the front office, on the players that you have that you develop, on the revenue that you get, on the probably on the reliability of your market. Uh, if you have generations of fans, they're probably a, my guess is they're probably a, a more stable uh, market than if you only have one or two generations. So anyway, the point is that Chris's amazing finding from a couple years ago is slightly, slightly broken uh, now by the Angels, but still basically true and still basically interesting. All right. Baseball has uh, long-term institutional disadvantages, yeah, just like society in many other respects. All right. Shall we move on? Well, you can all subscribe to Play Index using the coupon code BP to get the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription at BaseballReference.com. All right. couple more questions from Ken Maeda, our pal and Patreon supporter, who says, I'm not sure if you could run with this scenario, but it strikes me as potentially hilarious, so I had to pitch it. Say a crime syndicate coerces some key, low-paid players to throw the World Series. Somehow it gets to a Game 7, and the favorites have become underdogs. Now an unwitting rival syndicate coerces the other team's key low-paid players to throw the one game. Assume both starters are in on it. What happens when each set of players realizes the other is trying to lose? What kind of plays would be most problematic and farcical? Maybe a runner tries to get picked off, but the pitcher overthrows the ball, but the runner stumbles, etc. What strategy would you use if you were only worried about your own life? If you take out the Yankees, then all the non-expansion teams have a 502 winning percentage. A lot of that, of course, is because they were playing before expansion and against each other. And uh, with the Yankees in the league, they would be below 500. So maybe that's actually misleading. Uh, But they also are not that far. Okay. Anyway, I told you this and I told Ken this, but when I was in college, I uh, tried to write it like a novella. (laughs) And my novella was about two boxers who had both taken money to throw the fight but did not know that the other had. And they Uh walked into the ring and were sort of ambushed by circumstance and had to figure out a way to lose or else their families would be killed or something. I forget. Mm -hmm. So this is a topic near and dear to my heart. (laughs) And you finished it. I did. I got to the end. I wrote to the end. It was the only. It was the only thing I've ever written. The only work of fiction I've ever written that that had an ending. Mm, still have it. Uh, yes. 
<laughs> I do. Okay. Not <laughs> proud of it? <laughs> Did you say not proud of it? I'm asking. Pr- I mean, I'm proud I wrote it and finished uh-huh. it. I was like 20, 19. I did it in the uh-huh. summer when I could have been, you know, playing ping pong for four uh-huh. hours a day instead of three. And so I guess it shows a certain amount of grit. <laughs> it's it's garbage. It's total garbage. I wouldn't, I would not be able to read a single paragraph of it right now. Uh-huh. Okay. So the, what's the question? So I guess the question is what How would you do it in this situation? How would you do it? It'd be easy. Wouldn't it be easy? To to throw a baseball game? Well, I yeah, I think so. Depends how obvious you want to be about avoiding detection. But uh, but if the other team is also throwing the game and yeah. you don't know that, so let's. But first, before we do the the, what do you do when the other team is trying to lose to? Let's just. It would be easy to throw a baseball game without being detected. I believe. Like I don't think anybody would ever be caught. Because you don't have to do much. You don't have to hit 130 to make sure you lose. You have to throw, you know, one crucial ball on 3-2 that misses by a couple of inches. I guess you have to hope they don't swing. But nobody finds it suspicious when you spike a curveball. Mm-hmm. And uh, you only have to do a few of those. You could still be, you could definitely still uh, make the Hall of Fame and cause your team to lose. I think, I think you could, I think you could probably make the Hall of Fame and still cause your team to lose pretty reliably (laughs) yeah i guess if you pick your spots the problem is the problem is that is if you're if you're a pitcher you would take a lot of you take a lot of l's and uh you can't make the hall of fame if you take a lot of l's and if you're a hitter then you don't have the same kind of power you don't you don't get to throw that pitch on three two and simply striking out doesn't do enough if you're a hitter because great hitters go 0 for 4 in games that their teams win constantly. Uh, and you can't make the errors. You cannot make errors. You're, whatever your strategy is for throwing a baseball game cannot depend on you making misplays in the field because that those add up. Like you get mm-hmm. like you get like literally 20 errors a year, <laughs> and that's <laughs> that's like not if you're blowing three of those trying to trying to throw a game. It's going to show up quickly. You've really got to figure out a way to do this on the edges of the strike zone. Yeah. I would think you'd almost need your catcher to be in on it too to get away with it for a long time. I mean, I could be wrong. Obviously, pitchers miss their spots all the time. But I wonder whether a a catcher would sort of intuit that the pitcher was not giving his full effort. I mean, if you did it, you know, once every several games or something, then probably not. But... But I wonder if uh, if it were a pattern, then I would guess that the catcher would start to suspect something, even if it was just uh, almost an unconscious body language based thing. Hmm. I'm giving my I'm giving my game fixer more credit than that. <laughs> okay. All right. I think that you need to have the pitcher in on it, though. For and I've, I'm now rethinking everything I said. I think that it'd be the easiest thing in the world for the pitcher to do it. Could lose pretty easily on command. But a hitter could not. Uh huh. It'd be it'd be really tough. At the most, yeah. at the most, I think as a hitter, because you can't even. I don't even think a hitter could ground into a double play if it was like going to be particularly damaging to ground into a double play. I don't even think a hitter could do that. And everything else that is bad, other than making outs. So making outs is common. You can make outs for days without anybody noticing anything's up. But there's going to be a lot of outs made, and one is usually not going to swing the game. 
uh, that much. And all the things that are otherwise bad, like you getting thrown out on the bases or making an error, those stand out because they are relatively, well, they're very rare. So I think that you either need a lot of hitters, which is not how you want to do this. Someone's going to talk. Uh, or yeah. you need the pitcher. So now this question is tough because we don't know which positions are involved in this. Do we need to ask Ken to specify? Well, I think we need more <laughs> details. Can we get Ken to yeah. Can we get Ken He's... to flesh this out a little bit better? <laughs> yeah, he says key low-paid players, but key, I mean, I don't know what key could be. Yeah, unless it's the we need to know, I guess, if it's the pitcher. So let's see. It, Mike Trout, for instance, I'm going to see something real quick. This is going to be bonus play index. So I'm going to Mike Trout game finder. I'm going for any game in which he has at least three plate appearances and he has uh, zero hits and zero walks. So he, all Mike Trout can control is whether he gets on base and whether he makes errors in the field. I've already ruled out errors in the field. He might get away with one, but uh, most likely it's probably not going to come to him at just the right moment, and he probably can't get away with it a lot. It'd look really stupid to drop balls. But he can make himself go 0 for 4 without anybody noticing. So Mike Trout, in games where Mike Trout goes 0 4 in his career, the Angels are 44 and... 73. So that's pretty good. At just in with with no real suspicion at all, he knocks his team's winning percentage down from around 500 to around 376. Now, partly he's going 0 for 4 because he's facing really good pitchers. The pitchers that make Mike Trout go 0 for 4 are probably having good days. Uh, and also, uh, he's probably not batting five or six times. Uh, in those games. He's a lot more likely to go hitless in a game where he only bats three times or four times, and that's already a game where we know, by definition, the Angels have not scored many runs. So this is probably wildly misleading, but I would guess that by simply resolving to go 0 for 4 today instead of hitting like he normally would, Mike Trout can lower his team's chances by something like 8%, and that's just not enough to keep your head if you're... If you're taking money from the mob. Yeah, no, not really. If you took the least clutch player in any given season, I mean, no one knows who that player is, probably. I mean, Jeff Sullivan has probably written an article about him. But other than that, I don't think the world at large knows, oh, yeah, this guy has had the least clutch season of anyone. Maybe his fans are aware that he hasn't come through in those spots. But no one is suspicious. So you could be the least clutch player you could you could intentionally be unclutch and choke at important moments and you could do that as much as anyone ever does that and it would not arouse any suspicions but it also just wouldn't matter all that much unless you were just bad all the time you'd still be helping your team win and it's just uh yeah it's it's tough to do for your position player yeah I don't even think the clutch thing matters because assuming that you're not throwing every game, because if you did, then then you'd have to get a lot more complicated. But I mean, I'm assuming that this is just one one game a year or a couple games a year or something like that, where you can tuck an over four and without anybody being the wiser. I don't even think that it's a matter of like uh, making sure you fail when it's a clutch situation. You just go over four, just get all the outs. Like it's really easy to go over four, I think, even if you're Mike Trout without it looking odd. So... 
it doesn't even particularly matter whether you can leverage your your throwing of the game with a with a dropped fly ball if you know you've got maybe one that you can get away with then you could leverage that but for the outs just get all outs <laughs> yeah right is this a good line ben this is tommy lasorda on mike Sosha. if he raced his pregnant wife he'd finish third yeah i kind of like that i guess okay yeah it's pretty good all right <laughs> i mean obviously you you either finish first or third there's no there's no middle option. <laughs> but, <laughs> That's true. But still pretty yeah. good. Yeah. Yeah, it, it breaks down as you think about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So Ken, maybe send us some more details. Obviously you could get some Keystone Cops kind of plays where people are just competing to see how much they can kick the ball around or get picked off or flub plays. So it could devolve into a, a very obvious spectacle where people would realize that you were getting caught. But if you're the pitcher, you can, I mean, you know, you'd, you'd have like a, it depends on how hard you were trying to throw the game. But if you were really trying, then you'd have pitchers throwing balls outside the strike zone and hitters swinging at them wildly. I don't even know. I mean, I guess in that case, the if you're the hitter, then, it, well, huh. So if you're the hitter, you kind of have the power to lose. If you're right, if the pitcher is throwing balls way outside the strike zone, hoping to walk you, you have all the power. In it that depends. Spot. If the, it depends if the catcher's in it and on it. Uh, although no, yeah. yeah, because even if the cat, even if the catcher lets strike three go to the backstop and then doesn't chase it, if the batter leaves the batter's box without making an attempt at the base, he's automatically out. So yeah. uh, yes, if you're so, the yeah, hitter, so. you have the ultimate. You have the ultimate. Huh. Well, uh, no, you could. Uh, if they if they hit you in the face with the baseball, uh, you wow. could swing at it, and then yeah. it would be a strike. But I don't know that that's better than dealing with the mob. <laughs> like it, I think if they're gonna throw baseballs at your face that you can't dodge, then they ultimately they would have the greater power. The pitcher would, but he's uh-huh. gotta he's gotta hit you, and he's gotta hit you without you getting a swing off. And so it's probably we we would have to we probably would have to simulate this. Um, <laughs> I would guess that the hitter still has the power a little more of the power than the pitcher in that situation, but it's a little bit less clean than yeah. we were just saying. Yeah, that's interesting because we were just saying that the pitcher has all the power to throw the game, but that depends on the batter also not <laughs> trying to throw the game. So if they are matching up, well, then, if you uh, but if you want to do it without. Oh yeah, if you want to do it without looking suspicious, though, I guess, I guess it's just as common for batters to swing at pitches outside the strike zone as it is for pitchers to miss. However, mm-hmm. however, to the degree that you can throw a pitch that a batter can't reasonably swing at, it's easier for a pitcher to do that. Like it's easier for a pitcher to miss by th- three feet twice on accident and have everybody believe it than it is for a batter to swing at a pitch that misses by three feet twice on accident uh-huh. and have nobody notice it. Yeah. Especially true. if you're not throwing pitches, like if, if they're not sliders low and away, like if you're throwing it high, if you're, you know, just if you're throwing it to the backstop as a pitcher, you got you get a few of those, I think, before it looks weird. Yeah, I mean, Javi Baez could have been throwing games <laughs> for all we know. He was swinging at some pitches that... uh would be consistent with with that so it would look like that except even more 
extreme, I suppose. All right, I was going to finish with one more. Should I finish with one more? We didn't give a full answer to that one. That one's still pending further details, so, so let's do one more. This one is from another Sean who says, Here's a fun tweet, and it's a link to Mitchell Lichman, the sabermetrician, and this is a, a string of tweets from last month. He says, I firmly believe that an exceptionally smart pitcher with average stuff would be a well-above-average pitcher. I say that from watching so many strategic errors by pitchers and especially from the complete BS I hear from ex-pitchers on TV. Give me average MLB stuff, and I guarantee I'd be a number one starter. And later in this exchange, he clarifies that he is defining number one starter as a top 20% starter. And uh, Brandon McCarthy replied to that tweet and just said, okay. (laughs) And uh, Sean says, what do you think? He argues that his knowledge of game theory would allow him to far exceed his physical limitations. How good do you think Mitchell Lichman could be in Major League Baseball or anyone with uh, average stuff but well above average smarts could be in Major League Baseball if he had average stuff? He includes that his command would be average as well. What is the upper extent that game theory could improve a pitcher? You know, Ben, I don't know. And one of the ways that I, I feel like that I try to get ahead in this world is by not speculating irresponsibly about things that might hurt people's feelings. That's this whole podcast. <laughs> I know no, about things not that... Not for the last part. I don't... Yeah, <laughs> the last part's significant. I genuinely have no idea, and I don't want to... <laughs> I don't want to... feelings? This is going to hurt one's feelings. We can disagree, I think. We are irresponsibly speculating. I, I guess Mitchell is speculating, too, because he's never been in that situation. But, you know, he was saying that he would look at game theory, he would look at optimal pitch locations, he would break down better weaknesses. Essentially, he would come as close as humanly possible to throwing the optimal pitch in the optimal location to every batter, but he only has average stuff and command. So I don't even know how to answer this question. To me, it seems like a stretch, I think, to be an average starter talent-wise and then to have your intelligence bump you up to the top 20%. Sounds like a lot, but on the other hand, I would guess that, well, I don't know. I was going to say I would guess that a lot of pitchers don't come close to the optimal selection and location in every pitch. On the other hand, maybe a lot of them come closer than we would think, except that you then see examples of like Rich Hill-type people who just suddenly got way better because they started throwing a different pitch more often or, you know, mixing their pitches differently and suddenly they're an ace or something and that happens every now and then. So there are at least some cases where a major leaguer gets to the majors and is not nearly fulfilling his potential. So uh, hard to say. It's less, I think it, I didn't really necessarily mean to say that that it would hurt someone's feelings so much as that it is something that other people care about the answer. So like Mitchell might care, Mitchell might care seriously about, about what the actual answer is. And so to then come and speculate wildly about a thing with no, um, you know, with no grounds for saying uh, would be maybe disrespectful, but also, um, you know, like a, a pitcher, a pitcher might have strong opinions about this and know a lot more than me. Uh, and so to speculate with uh, with none of that expertise also feels disrespectful uh, and pointless. However, that said, <laughs> <laughs> there was a uh, Jason Kidd 
went to uh, to Cal when I was um, following Cal basketball. And I remember reading a like a magazine article that it was the weirdest magazine article, or maybe it was a TV profile or something like that. But it was the weirdest thing because it was it was all about how stupid he is, <laughs> like what a bad student he is. Like it was all about like what a terrible student he was, but how he is a genius nonetheless because of his like he is a genius on the court. Uh-huh. It was really weird. <laughs> I remember thinking that's an odd frame that you guys have chosen <laughs> for this puff piece. But I think that baseball players uh, are incredibly smart at what they do, um, and uh, so I don't I don't think that a, a way of defining intelligence so narrowly uh, does nearly enough credit to what is going on in their cognition, what goes on in their preparation, the uh, amount of experience that they have, and the amount of wisdom that builds up um, consciously and subconsciously through all that experience. Uh, and so my my guess is that that uh, all of us who think that we're smart are probably not anywhere close to as smart about somebody's area of expertise um, as they are and uh, that baseball pitchers have this as their area of expertise. So I don't buy it. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, I know that I couldn't improve on on a pitcher's usage, I don't think, but I would say that players are selected to some extent for their ability to make the most of their physical gifts and obviously they're selected for their work ethic and their dedication as well as just can they have this inherent ability to throw a fastball or hit a fastball but i think they're primarily or they're they're more selected for those gifts than they are for any other one thing and so i think if you took like a if you took like a a guy with you know 80 game theory skills or 80 ability to determine what the right pitch to throw is in any given situation i would bet that in most cases that person would be better at that one thing than the player is like i would i would guess that the average player is not like a 99th percentile decider of how to do things in the most optimal way i could be wrong but i think that would be the case like if you know there are people who are probably as skilled in that aspect of things as the baseball player is in the physical aspect of things and the baseball player is also good at the other stuff because he can't just be completely terrible at making those decisions and still make the majors but i think you could improve on it so i don't know whether mitchell is that person but if you say there is such a person i would buy that that you could be better than uh than the typical player is at those things, but he's not. But the pitcher is not. Out, the pitcher is not an island as it is. The the pitcher is surrounded by many people who are already trying to be that person and who do put a lot of mental energy uh, into providing yeah. the resources and the thought processes around these things, and that also have decades of experience trying to do this well, uh, yeah. and and living it in various ways. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, again, I, like I sort of agree that if uh, if somebody raised John Lackey uh, in a room all by himself uh, and all he could do was, you know, strengthen his arm uh, and, uh, and, you know, eat bread uh, <laughs> until he was ready to go on a major league mound and then you nobody told him what to throw, nobody told him what to do, he, he probably would do some... He probably would not have optimal game theory <laughs> in that situation. <laughs> but... 
like there's a a lot going on i think that is supporting john lackey that's training him and that is creating a sort of a system that goes out there with him on the mound um mm-hmm. and i have a i mean i i think i generally have faith uh, that that system is providing some value and probably a, probably a significant amount of value and more value than I would promise as an outsider to be able to bring into it based on uh, how good I am at Sudoku. <laughs> yeah, right. So I agree. I I definitely wouldn't make this claim about myself, but I think that it's possible that it could be true about a person that you know you could have someone who is not a baseball player who does not have the physical gifts that a baseball player does, but has studied the game for their whole life and really devoted themselves to this aspect of it and has data crunching skills that the player doesn't have, although someone with the team would have them. I think you could be better than an average pitcher with average stuff, but I don't think you could go from average to ace. I think it would be a fairly small advantage unless you were really some sort of prodigy who could just uh, just a savant who could evaluate all of these many factors in real time. And from talking to John Baker and Brian Bannister on my other baseball podcast a couple months ago, it seemed like they were pretty convinced that there's a lot of room for improvement in that support structure. Bannister, for instance, was the one who was able to turn Rich Hill's career around or played a big part in it. So maybe once every team has a Baker or a Bannister, there'll be less room for improvement. But I think there's probably still some ground that could be gained there. Mm -hmm. All right. So that will do it for today. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. Five listeners who have already done so, Gordon Christen, Mark Sands, Doug Lemoyne, James Leary, and Nick Sievers. Thank you. You can buy our book at theonlyruleisithastowork.com. The name of the book is The Only Rule Is It Has to Work, our wild experiment building a new kind of baseball team. Leave us a review on Amazon and Goodreads if you liked it. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild. And you can rate and review and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can also subscribe to my other baseball podcast, The Ringer MLB Show. We'll have an episode up Friday. You can contact me and Sam at podcast at baseballperspectives.com or by messaging us through Patreon. And we will be back soon. Oh,